Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Modern science on this is summarized, I think, in this wonderful saying, I'm sure you know it, neurons that fire together, fire together. In other words, there's this movement from state to trait. The problem is most of our positive states, most of our beneficial, useful feelings, sensations, ideas, intentions, and so forth, wash right through the brain like water through a sieve, while our negative states, our moments of irritation, strain, stress, tension, sorrow, and loss, get caught immediately because of the brain's so-called negativity bias. I say it's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. You're listening to Dr. Rick Hansen on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Hi, this is Diana here, and we have a real treat for you today. Dr. Rick Hansen, who is a neuropsychologist that specializes in what's called self-directed neuroplasticity, is on the show. And this is one that you're going to want to just really savor yourself and share with your loved ones. Rick Hansen is just such an embodiment of what he teaches. I'm curious, I have Jill Stoddard here, and I'm curious, Jill, I think on the heels of your episode last week, Be Mighty, uh, what was what was your reaction to this work by Rick Hansen? I loved this episode so much. It was so incredibly heartwarming. And, you know, I felt like I really took away some things that I could practice and apply immediately, even while I was listening to the episode. And one of the things that really struck me is he said, and I might not be getting the quote exactly right, but he said something to the effect of, we miss opportunities to take in the good of the moment and grow those resources inside. And he talks about using some of these practices to um, turn up the recorder and how you know, positive and negative things get associated. And I think that typically the negative so often overshadows the positive. And these practices that he's talking about are meant to kind of flip that switch around. And I loved the heel practice that he does during the episode. And it reminded me a lot of Kelly Wilson's sweet spot exercise, which is in Be Mighty. And just a reminder that we have the opportunity, you know, many, many times throughout the day to kind of show up and and be present and take in the real positive, soothing, comforting aspects of the, the gifts around us. I think one of the things that ACT practitioners might sort of notice is that he talks a lot about taking in the good. And is that is that ACT consistent in terms of if, if we're focusing on the good, what does that mean? Uh, are we you know, doing something that's uh, getting rid of the bad. And I think that Rick Hansen really does offer in this episode, the idea that it's not about getting rid of the bad. It's making a place for that, but also, like you said, turning up the volume and placing our attention on where, where, where it would be helpful and values aligned for us in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's even a misconception. Technically, the definition of experiential avoidance is really anything you do or don't do to change the way you feel or control your internal experiences. But that doesn't mean that all experiential avoidance is bad. So doing a self-compassion exercise like this heal practice could technically be considered experiential avoidance. But if it doesn't come at a cost and it doesn't pull you away from your values, then it's act consistent. And in fact, if practicing something soothing 
makes it more likely that you're able to engage and participate with the people you love or the things you care about, then it certainly seems act consistent to me. So I'm, I'm curious, Jill, have you tried any of this out on yourself since listening? Because I certainly have. I have. In fact, while I was listening to the episode, I happened to be walking into my garage to get on my treadmill and I saw my two dogs sitting together. They have two dog beds, but they were sitting together on one dog bed. And I just thought it was lovely. You know, why why do it alone when you can do it together, right? Mm -hmm. And so while I was on my treadmill listening to the episode, um, I actually practiced one of Rick Hansen's gratitude practices that he was talking about. And at one point I did feel like I needed to close my eyes. So I just sort of held on tight and and did that. But it really, it just filled me with so much warmth and gratitude. And it was, you know, just kind of that an imagery exercise related to my dogs. And I've been doing it ever since with small things in in small ways without closing my eyes or setting time aside or sitting on a cushion, but just really, you know, noticing the gorgeous ocean view outside my office when I walk to the bathroom, connecting with my puppies when they're snuggling up next to me, and really allowing that feeling of gratitude to to wash over me. And um, it's been lovely. Yeah. I love how he says in the episode that these inner resources of safety and satisfaction and connection, they aren't necessarily things that we have to go out and seek, but they're available to us all the time. We just don't pay attention to them or let them sink in. Mm -hmm. And when we take this different perspective, which is also very act, this idea of perspective taking self as context, we take a different perspective on our life, seeking out, looking for, where do I feel connection right now? Where do I feel safety right now? Where do I feel satisfaction right now? And what Mm -hmm. you were alluding to, Jill, made me think of it was both a safety and a connection and maybe even a satisfaction moment of seeing your dogs. Mm -hmm. We start to build those resources inside our own bodies. So I I just love this episode. Like you mentioned, there is a, a practice smack in the middle of it. So if you're on a treadmill or you're driving or who knows where you are, you can either try it in your life, eyes open as you are and see what it's like, or you can also kind of allow it to flow through and come back to it another time. But he's such a treasure. Enjoy Rick Hansen. It's a real, real honor to have him on the show. If you're like us, you're going to want to learn more from Dr. Rick Hansen after listening to this episode. And one way to do that is by taking part in his year-long program called the Foundations of Wellbeing Program. He's offering a a special promo code for Psychologist Off the Clock listeners. You can enter Off the Clock 40 to receive $40 off the program. So just go to our show notes, click on the uh, affiliate link that we have down there to the program, or you can go to our website and enter again, off the clock 40 to receive $40 off that wonderful program. Rick Hansen is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and New York Times bestselling author. His books are available in 28 languages and include Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture. And he's coming out with a new book in spring that we'll be looking forward to. He edits the Wise Brain Bulletin and has numerous audio programs. A summa cum laude graduate of UCLA and founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, he's been an invited speaker at Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, and taught in meditation centers worldwide. His work has been featured in BBC, CBS, and NPR, and he offers Just One Thing newsletter, a free newsletter for over 135 subscribers, including my mom. She often sends them to me, her favorite. Now we're at 150,000. Okay. Awesome. And he has an online program called the Foundations of Well-Being, and it's a year-long program in positive neuroplasticity that we'll put some links to in our show notes. It sounds like a fascinating program to really could apply these skills in your life. He enjoys rock climbing and taking breaks from emails, and he has two uh, children, adult children, with his wife. Welcome, Dr. Hansen. It's such an honor to have you on the show. Well, hello, Dr. Hill, and uh, feel free to call me Rick, please. Okay. Great. I, I first learned about you actually a number of years ago. I couldn't, I was at my neighbor's house and she's a Buddhist, practicing Buddhist, and I couldn't sleep. And I went to her bookshelf hmm. and was looking through all the books and I pulled out just one thing hmm. because it seemed like in the middle of the night, that would be a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Something simple. 
And it was so, uh, I think for me, encouraging. And there was this sense of heart that you brought to it and also practicality. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see throughout your whole body of work is this Mm -hmm. sense of heart, this encouraging heart and also practicality, but then these roots in science. So I'm really excited to talk about some of the some of the ideas that you've that you brought out in that book, but the the whole body of work that you've offered us over time. Well, Diana, I'm extremely touched actually that you have really gotten and shared back to me in such a sweet way. Uh, it's kind of the heart of the matter, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, art, practicality, and and science. Um, yeah, that's pretty great. So I'm touched. I'm really touched, honestly. Thank you. I think the heart part is maybe a place to start because you're you're really rooted in in Buddhist traditions and your own contemplative practice, and uh, it's this unique thing about you, which is you can tell that you have this history with the work. And can you talk a little bit about where some of some of the roots of your work come from? Well, oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I think like a lot of people, there were things that I felt and knew when I was a little kid that I could not put into words. And I think that's actually a really useful resource and refuge for people to go back to the things that they knew in their bones were true, even if they couldn't articulate them as a four-year-old or a 14-year-old, and even if they were being denied or even perhaps shamed by other people around them. They're like, these things we know are true. And Mm -hmm. I knew one thing for sure when I was a really little kid, which was that there was a lot of unnecessary unhappiness. There was a lot of unnecessary quarreling, bickering, fussing, worrying, hassling, strain, and so forth. I grew up in a very decent environment, middle-class, suburban, Los Angeles, intact family, loving, decent parents. And still, I was observing what 2,500 years ago the Buddha talked about as suffering really. Uh, Unsatisfactoriness, strain, tension, subtle, medium, or horrible. Mm -hmm. And then a little later in my childhood, uh, in my teens actually, uh, kind of at a deep pit of worry and despair, and when I was right about 15, I suddenly realized that no matter how bad the past had been or even the present, I could always learn a little and grow a little from here. And that seemed incredibly hopeful. It reminds me of the kind of proverb that the future is the undiscovered country. There's that sense of possibility. So uh, that kind of set me on my way. I was thoroughly confused. You know, I didn't know exactly what to do. I tried different things. Uh, And then I stumbled into the um, world of um, human potential, humanistic psychology in college. And then that led me into the contemplative traditions, which, as you well know, occur worldwide, including in secular, mainly in spiritual settings. And they also include, of course, in addition to the great religious traditions, the indigenous people traditions, the first people around the world. Uh, So contemplative practice, you know, is not exotic or esoteric. We've all been contemplative, just standing by the seashore, looking up at the stars, or your child is born and suddenly you go, whoa, (laughs) this is it. So that kind of set me on my way. And to kind of summarize a lot of stuff, I began meditating in 1974, uh, Buddhism has been the closest tradition for me, particularly the roots of it, the teachings of the Buddha, which are highly psychological. They're not terribly metaphysical in most cases. They're very direct, and they're not freighted with a lot of cultural baggage. Uh, and in a good translation, they're extremely penetrating. And the Buddha calls us to do our own practice. I think that a good translation of his last words, as best we know, were things fall apart, tread the path with care, right? That's deeply penetrating. It's also encouraging. And like Coach Buddha says, you got to do your own work, right? And that has really drawn me in a lot of ways. And then in the last 20 years, as modern neuroscience has, artic- has developed really usable, actionable knowledge now, the intersection of neuroscience um, and clinical psychology and contemplative wisdom is really fertile with insights and tools. So that's kind of where I work. Uh, You know, in a fancy term, I would say I do applied neurodharma for a living. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's ever going to be a book title, but that's a lot of what I do. It's like that intersection, you know, intersections are are ripe with, with, with opportunity. 
So to sum it all up, I wrote Buddha's Brain about 12 years ago. It got published about 10 and a half years ago. And I find that it's wonderful to feel that we have the chance today to bring together in a way that's historically unprecedented. We have immediate access to the wisdom of the great teachers of the world. We don't have to walk for six months to some monastery. We have immediate access to tremendous scientific knowledge. And we have the wonderful centuries old, century old easily tradition of clinical psychology that's very applied and practical. And when you bring those together, wow, sparks fly. And you can really help a lot of people. Really, a lot of your work is uh, focusing on building internal resources. And I think what's unique about your application of neuroscience is your ability to describe to us how we can actually change our brain mm -hmm. by changing, uh, but through our experience, yeah. uh, something that you called experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Yeah. Can you describe that to us? How, how, how our mind can, what you say, sculpt our brain? Uh -huh. Great. Well, that phrase, uh, experience-dependent neuroplasticity, is not my own, first of all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a term that's used. And it's a fancy way of saying learning, in a nutshell. In other words, we're both parents. Uh, we've watched our kids learn to walk instead of crawl. We've watched them ride a bicycle. We've, you know, in my case with adult kids, we've watched them learn how to navigate tricky relationships with peers. Uh, as, as adults ourselves, we may learn how to be more patient. We, we learn how to let go of uh, needless worries. We grow. We heal, we change. And for any kind of healing or growing or durable change to occur, there must be a lasting change in the body, particularly in its nervous system headquartered in its brain. So we'll speak about neuroplastic change in the brain, which is of course embedded in larger systems and out into life altogether. It's not to be brain-centric, but it is to appreciate that the final common pathway of the causes flowing through us to make this moment of consciousness, this moment of hearing, this moment of feeling, this moment of suffering or loving and enjoying, that final common pathway runs right between our ears. So the modern science on this is summarized, I think, in this wonderful saying, I'm sure you know it, neurons that fire together, fire together. In other words, there's this movement from state to trait. The problem is, most of our positive states, most of our beneficial, useful feelings, sensations, ideas, intentions, and so forth, wash right through the brain like water through a sieve, while our negative states, our moments of irritation, strain, stress, tension, sorrow, and loss, get caught immediately because of the brain's so-called negativity bias. I say it's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones to kind of summarize a lot of stuff. And that negativity bias helped our ancestors live to see the sunrise back in the Stone Age or on the Serengeti Plains or, you know, 65 or 100 million years ago, let's say, back in Jurassic Park. But today, that negativity bias flattens the growth curve of people moving through therapy or, or trying to heal and grow in other ways. And it flattens the growth curve for people in general. So um, what I'm really, really interested in is empowering individuals to take charge of the brain change process from the inside out. The brain is continually being changed by media, by other people, by the pain in our back, by, you know, the arising material from that's unresolved from our childhood. It's being continually changed. The only question is, is it being changed for the better and who's doing the changing? And so I've gotten very interested in the research-based or otherwise plausible internal mental factors. In other words, things we can do ourselves in how we engage our experiences that are beneficial to help them sink in to increase their conversion rate from mental state to neurally based trait multiple times a day. And what that is, is very hopeful because it uh, is empowering and it's forward leaning. It's also very practical because you see the results immediately and it's a way to steepen the growth curves, the healing curves, the transformation curves of people as they move through life. 
And mm -hmm. I think that's the X factor. It's the superpower of superpowers, learning, um, self-directed yes. neuroplasticity, as Jeffrey Schwartz put it, because it's the strength that grows the other strengths we need for the long and twisty road of life. What you describe so well is this practice of really absorbing uh, and, and taking in the good, as opposed to the absorbing and taking in the bad, which our mind, our brain automatically does. When I walk into my living room, I see the handprints of my kids on the couch or the mess of, of my life, as opposed to really taking in the sweetness of having young children or the yeah. sweetness of the art that they created before they put the handprint on the couch. Yeah. Right. And so it's a really a, a mind shift. And I think about you and how you've been practicing this for so many years mm. yourself and how much it really shows up in how you, you write. And it seems that you approach the world. Have you noticed a change in yourself from doing this work mm. over time? Well, that's kind. Maybe it's part of my known negativity bias. I mean, I notice my foibles and my reactivity, you know, it's still present in the mind. Uh, but I think that, yeah, I mean, I, two parts, you know, I'm, I'm, a lot of my personal culture runs through North Dakota, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> where my father grew up on a ranch, born in 1918. And, and so I, I'm sort of reflexively modest. So you're watching me squirm a little here. But uh, mm -hmm. I think in all honesty, yeah, I'm so much happier than I used to be. I feel so much more resilient. I, I drop stuff so much faster than I used to. And I say this not particularly out of crediting myself, but the point is hopefulness. It's like if we do the work, we grow over time. And the rate of change depends on a lot of factors, including uh, privilege. You know, there's been a lot of privilege in my life that I haven't had to struggle with certain things and, and I've been afforded opportunities through other means. And I think it's really important to call that out, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot easier to practice psychological growth if you're not worried about your job every day or having no job at all or how to feed your own kids. So, okay. you know, or you're dealing with, you know, forms of prejudice and discrimination routinely every day. I don't want to you know, acknowledge that. But the larger point is absolutely true. Uh, we inherit the results of our own practice. And that's both incredibly hopeful. No one can stop you from practicing inside your own mind. Mm -hmm. And no one can do it for you. So, yeah, thank you for saying that, by the way. Could you teach us one of the practices? I, I really like the HEAL practice, H-E-A-L, that yeah. you offer in, um, in Resilient, and I imagine you offer it in other places too. It uh, seems like a good practice to start with. Well, in a quick nutshell, HEAL is an acronym, H-E-A-L, that describes the fundamental process of the internalization of beneficial experiences to grow psychological resources like grit, gratitude, compassion, and happiness right? It's easy to lose sight of the fact that what we're talking about is developing ourselves to have resilient well-being over time in a very down-to-earth kind of way. So how do we actually do it? How do we actually become a little happier, a little stronger, a little more loving, a little wiser at the end of the day compared to where we were when we woke up in the morning, or at least at the end of the week or the month or the year compared to where we started. How do we actually do that? That gets at the fundamental process of brain change, which occurs in two stages. Really simply, neurons that fire together, wire together. We start with an experience, a state that we must convert into some kind of lasting change of neural structure or function. That's the fundamental process of learning. And people routinely forget the second stage, including therapists and counselors yes. such as myself. And that's the stage where we turn a passing experience into something of lasting value, hardwired into our own bodies that we can take with us wherever we go. Even when everything falls apart around us, we have these inner qualities of wisdom and love and and endurance and, and deep well-being woven into the fabric of our own nature. That's a wonderful thing. So HEAL stands for have, have a beneficial experience in the first place, usually because you already have one. 
I'm looking over your shoulder and seeing your, your, I think, son with a skateboard and looks like such a cool guy having a good time. Palm trees in the background. I'm feeling happy just seeing him. All right. I'm already, it's already occurring. I'm just noticing that. Or I could deliberately create an experience. I could deliberately call up a memory of my own children when they were young. You know, you can create a beneficial experience. Great. Now you have that experience. And uh, the E and the A of the HEAL acronym stands for Enrich and Absorb. We help the experience be big and last by enriching it. We keep those neurons firing together, to increases, which increases their wiring. And then we also absorb it into our body. We have a sense of it sinking in and we, in effect, turn up the receptivity of the memory-making machinery in our own brain, particularly implicit memory for sensations and feelings and, and social-emotional learning, in other words. So we, we turn up the recorder. We, we help the recorder be more sensitive through focusing on things like the rewards and the experience. So we absorb it more efficiently. And that's the essence of the process. And I'll take us through it in a moment experientially. And then linking is the optional step in the fundamental process of growth in which if we choose, if it's appropriate, we associate positive and negative together. We're aware of two things at once. So for example, in the foreground of awareness, we could have a sense of feeling respected and seen and appreciated let's say by you right now, and off to the side are memories from being a really young, shy kid going through school. I skipped a grade and I have a late birthday, and I was kind of nervous and anxious and, and withdrawn. Little Ricky off in a corner that no one is seeing or including or wanting to play with, let's say. And so by association, uh, that positive material can associate with that negative material, gradually soothing and easing and even replacing it. That's the fundamental mm -hmm. process. And um, anyone can do it. We all do it. I didn't invent this process. I've organized it and applied it a lot and really grounded it in science. But uh, this is natural to us. We just don't do it very deliberately. And we miss opportunities dozens of times a day to take in a little bit of the good of the moment and grow various resources inside. So if you want to try it right now, I'll give, you know, in a minute, you can have a sense of this. So if you're listening and, you know, Diana, you could do it with me. An easy one is to think of things you feel grateful for. Really simple. And help the idea of these things become a feeling. Even amidst a difficult life, even with pain and sorrow and loss, there can still be things we're grateful for. You know, including... Just grateful for having a good heart already. Uh, grateful for the kindness of others. Grateful for the gift of life. Yeah. And then once you're starting to have that experience of gratitude, and I'll say less, it'll get quieter now. Stay with it. If it fades, just come back to it for a few breaths. Feel it in your body. There could be other feelings like gladness or relief, softening. And in addition to this kind of enriching, you can have a sense of absorbing gratitude into yourself, kind of sinking into your body, maybe like a warmth or a happiness spreading inside you. Like you're receiving it into yourself. While being aware of what feels good about it, giving over to it. Letting yourself develop a little more trait gratitude, the attitude of gratitude. And then if you want, no need, but if you want to experiment with this while 
remaining focused on gratitude in the foreground of awareness, maybe off to the side could be a sense of discontent, sense of drivenness, stressful striving. And you might have a sense of the gratitude somehow making contact with that discontent or frustration. Not trying to suppress it, simply easing it. It's like gratitude, like a soothing balm, sinking into places inside that have felt frustrated. And then returning only to gratitude, letting go of anything negative, and resting in a sense of grateful contentment, enoughness. You can still have goals, you can still wish for more, you can still dream big dreams, but with a sense of fullness already. That's that. Thank you. That was lovely. And it's an experience that I've I've done through reading some of your work. And I think the interesting part is that end point where you start to link it to some of the negative. And for me, I find the negative shows up earlier on before I start linking it. (laughs) It, it It starts to creep in. And I was actually last night, I was back to not sleeping again. And I couldn't sleep because it was really windy and I was worried about my orchid plant falling over outside. I put it outside (laughs) and I was worried about my mom because she was alone with my dad's traveling. And then I was worried about nuclear war. And as I'm falling asleep, all of them seemed equally scary (laughs) because that's where my mind was. And I think about doing this type of practice right now when it's daytime and I'm with Rick Hansen I can go to, my heart is open. I go to gratitude. Like that's, that's close at hand. But what about in the middle of the night or when it's really hard? Yeah, well, that's excellent. A um, couple points. First, before I speak to what you raised, I just want to comment that most of the times when we take in the good, quote unquote, we're doing it in the flow of life over the course of a breath or two. Yeah. The practice I did with you was more formal, and it was probably three minutes long, maybe about. Um, That's really long. Uh, And you can even do it longer if you want. But most of the time, it's quick, and it's informal. It's in the flow. Second point, before I answer your question, many of the experiences we internalize are not flashy. It's not about seeing the most gorgeous sunrise of your life. It's about a moment of gritty determination or an insight into other people or Mm -hmm. a commitment to sobriety or to exercise or to being patient with your kids. Um, These are the kinds of experiences as well that we take in because these are the kinds of resources we want to grow. It's not just Mm -hmm. about, um, you know, smelling the roses, not that there's anything wrong with that. Okay. So that said, in the middle of the night, go on. I was going to say, it it reminds me, you can go to the gym and exercise for an hour, but really we can also move. We can walk to the mailbox. We can walk our dog. And it's those small movements throughout our day that actually that creates the patterning of movement and blood flow in our body. And it really yeah. seems that practices like taking in the good are a lot like that. It's it's the, the turning over and over and over again toward it that helps build that resource. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. There's this beautiful proverb. I'll just repeat it right now. Think not lightly of good saying it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. And I I believe in that. I believe in drops. (laughs) Yeah. Whole buckets at a time. That's kind of out of reach, except for those morning dollar moments. But drop by drop, synapse by synapse, we really can take in the good. So to your specific question, a couple things. Uh, One is, you're, you're right. There's, what do we do in the moment? when the oatmeal starts to fly or we wake up and we're worried and we can't sleep. So first of all, how we have trained and practiced 
off the field is what we draw upon when we're on the field and things are falling apart. So, you know, that's an important point in general. We draw upon uh, what we've developed over time. That said, in that moment, what a person could do, uh, let's say when they're feeling anxious, and you're, you're bringing a really great point up, is to look for resources, inner resources, that are matched to the issue. And the issue has to do with an unmet need. There are three major needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. They tend to blur together, sure, but you can tease them apart. Anxiety is a flag of an unmet need for safety. Mm -hmm. It also, in your particular case, it was a two-for-one because it was a concern about loved ones. Uh, your mother and your and so forth, and your mm-hmm. beloved orchids and the world all together. And our planet. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. our planet. So there you are. So great. <laughs> so how do we do that? Uh, right. Can, so, and it's interesting that if you started doing a gratitude practice, which addresses our need for satisfaction, it would not have been very helpful. It might have been mm-hmm. distracting, but it wasn't on point because it didn't address mm-hmm. the sense of danger and threat. Oh, it's so good. Yes. Yeah. So we need to find resources Uh that are matched. It's like if you have a flat tire, you could put gas in the tank, but it's not going to solve your problem, right? You need a resource that's matched to the thing. So in the moment, there are some major uh, familiar resources for dealing with anxiety. And the more that we've developed these inner strengths, these traits inside ourselves, the more successful we'll be when we draw upon them. That said, I'll just go through a few. One is to relax the body. Uh, That's very fundamental to be able to relax the body at will. Uh, Long exhalations are really helpful because, as you probably know, the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system is engaged with exhaling, and that parasympathetic branch is calming and soothing. So long exhalations, that can help to relax the body. It can also um, help to bring up, frankly, a sense of personal strength. In other words, anxiety is about a mismatch between resources and challenges. So by bringing up a feeling of grit, determination, fortitude in oneself, I can deal with this. You know, that, that is really helpful, you know, just to kind of know there's a core of strength in me that, it's, that also calms anxiety. Another, of course, is to make a good plan and a plan that does not overestimate threats or underestimate resources. Action binds anxiety. Good planning binds anxiety. That's another thing to do. Not to obsess about it, but to know to yourself, what will I do about the orchid? Well, I could get up and move it. Or, poor orchid, worst case, I'll replace it. Uh, Or, you know, nuclear war. Well, I live in LA. (laughs) Not a lot I can (laughs) do about that. So, do I want to move? No. Okay. I'm just going to live with this uncertainty. And that's my plan. There are many things in life we don't know about and that could take us out that are more likely than a nuclear war, which I personally, I think is insane that uh, the U.S. and Russia have the capacity to destroy the northern hemisphere of our own planet, two billion people at the time. Totally insane. And ranting about it myself is not going to change that. So, you know, so you make a plan. Another classic resource, in your case especially, is a two-for-one is bring to mind the feeling of being cared about and included, that you have allies with you. That's really soothing because feeling love flowing in or out in all its forms is a profound signal of safety as well as satisfaction and connection. Love is the multivitamin. It's the ultimate medicine because it addresses all of our needs. So you clearly have such a warm heart. Being in touch with your own heart flowing out and feeling cared about by others flowing in, that's also enormously soothing. And then last, I'll just leave you with this one. It's one of the most powerful practices I know, and it's continually under our nose most of the time. We are actually basically all right right now. In now, we're okay. Anxiety is about the future, anticipatory anxiety, right? And in this moment, the body's basically okay. There's an ongoingness of living. The great gift of consciousness is continuing. Of all the remarkable causes and conditions that had to come together to form your moment of consciousness, Diana, at three in the morning, it's extraordinary, even on the worst day of your life, right? It's extraordinary. Uh, And in most moments, you're basically all right. Now, some moments we're not. This whole thread we're exploring is never about falsifying what's true. And in fact, by 
focusing on what is good and beneficial and wholesome and useful, it increases our capacity to deal with what's bad, right? Mm-hmm. This is not yeah. about turning away from the bad. This is about growing strengths inside to face it squarely and to really bear it and deal with it, right? So, okay, so that's what I would suggest. And given, if I dare say this, and you can edit it out if you like, what you've said, you know, these are the kind of resources that a person could flag to grow over time. Resources that address anxiety, let's say, over time, uh, including concern about others. In my own case, as I've said, I was a shy, scared kid whose parents were really bad at empathy while also being very loving and decent. So it was a kind of an odd childhood. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have issues particularly with satisfaction or safety. I, you know, grew up in a lower middle class environment, not with poverty. You know, we ate TV dinners, money was tight, but it wasn't horrible. Uh, But wow, my needs for connection were not met. So those are the resources that I, w- that I went after with intention beginning in my late teens when I went to college. And then after that, I kept taking in the good of social supplies again and again and again, because that's where my hole in the heart was. But other people have different issues. Uh, mm-hmm. I think of it as like, you know, if you have scurvy, you need vitamin C. Iron pills are great, but they're not going to do the trick. So what's your vitamin C? You know, what's your key inner resource to grow these days inside yourself? And then every day you can look for opportunities to feel it and then kind of marinate in it a breath at a time to gradually weave it into the fabric of your own nervous system. It's so interesting because what I ended up doing, and I think it's because of some of these practices over time, was I ended up just breathing to my, my husband was sleeping next to me. And ended up breathing to his breathing. And I think his breathing was kind of slow and long because it is when you, when you sleep and it was exactly that it was, how can I find safety right here inside this, this little space and connection. And I was even thinking about this morning with this feeling of connection to people like you, to people like Paul Gilbert, to people like Tara Brock Mm. that are you know, I don't know you personally, but I feel really connected to your work and your offering mm-hmm. and what what you have to offer on the planet, which is the antidote to the, yeah. to the fears of the nuclear war. And in some ways, that, that, that is the action, right? The action is for us to share your voice with people mm-hmm. and that if we can soothe our threat systems in our own little beds, <laughs> that may help soothe the threat system of our planet. What happens in a global way is just a big macro example of what happens in our own little beings. A lot of the time we live in threat and fear and otherness. The deep point. And um, that's sweet how you soothed yourself there. You know, good practice. And you're totally right. When we feel that our needs are not met, when we feel there's a shortage of safety, satisfaction and connection, when we feel gripped by fear and anger greed and just, you know, frustration or loneliness, resentment, vengeance, and grievance, right? We are very tough critters and we do horrible things as human beings. On the other hand, when people have an internalized sense of inner peace and contentment and love, when they've developed that over time, you can see it in the example of people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or people like the, I think clearly the Dalai Lama today or, uh, Frankly, in my view, you could see it in Barack Obama, uh, certainly Michelle Obama, people who are dealing with adversity, and yet in the core of their being, they don't let hatred invade their heart. Mm-hmm. My own hope is that somehow, as the material conditions in the world improve, as they, as they dramatically have in our own lifetime, certainly in my lifetime, they've improved dramatically for most people in the world, although we have a long, long way to go. As these material conditions improve, that's not enough because you can see in people with great wealth and power, there's still this core gnawing in the heart that is endlessly hungry for narcissistic supplies and experiences of dominance. So we need to internalize experiences of well-being again and again and again. And as we do that, you just notice it. And a lot of research supports this, that as we fill up our own cup inside, people become, as you were alluding to, become our pro-social. 
we become more altruistic. We become more reasonable. If we have to be strong and defend ourselves against some form of attack, whether it's inside a family or a couple or an organization or a country, we can still be strong, but without being poisoned by, uh, you know, the sense of grievance and vengeance that as social hunter-gatherers, we're very vulnerable to. And how does this relate to parenting? Because you're a parent now of two adult children and you have a podcast with your son, which would be a dream for me to have that kind of a relationship with my son someday Yeah, that he would want to just be in the same room with me. You get to work with your son, which is amazing. And he's, uh, he's delightful. Forrest Hansen. It's such a fun podcast to listen to. How did you do it? How did you foster these resources as a parent? What are some ideas that we could use for those of us that are parenting? Well, no parent is a perfect parent. You know, my kids would Able, be able to tell you times I lost my temper. Um, I was overly stressed. I was I won battles but lost the war, to use that metaphor. And on the other hand, I really tried to learn along the way. And keep in mind from the moment our kids were born, really, that there was a being behind those eyes. I think that's, you know, my own background, you may know, uh, is in developmental psychology, early childhood. I've spent a lot of time in schools and preschools. My dissertation was on 15-month-olds. And mm. I have a deep feeling for children. And if, if we want to, you know, we have a moral obligation to children. And if we want to fulfill that obligation, the best possible way is to support mothers. You know, if the human species made the welfare of mothers the number one public policy priority, we would change the world in a generation. It would be completely transformational. So, uh, you know, that's kind of my own background and interest about that. And in terms of takeaways, I would say I think taking the long view is really important. It's so easy to get caught up in uh, getting the kid to eat their vegetables tonight or pass this math test in fourth grade. And we can easily lose sight of the big picture. You know, negative experiences, Barbara Fredrickson's research shows, tend to foreclose uh, perception. We tend to look only at what's immediately in front of us, saturated with self-referential processing, a lot of me, myself, and I. So number one, take the long view. The bottom line is who's your kid going to be when he or she or they are 25? Really? That's the view. What, you know, well, who's that being? And to keep that prize in front of your eyes. That would be my first suggestion. Second, super take care of your own welfare, your own well-being, especially mothers, frankly, who do the bulk of bearing and rearing in the culture. The village it takes to raise a child is more like a ghost town these days. It's, it's really weird. It's useful to keep in mind that the social structure of child rearing in the developed world is completely aberrant in terms of the hunter-gatherer template. And so it's really important for parents to resource themselves internally as much as they can, physical health, their relationship. That's really important. Take care of your own well-being. And I think the last thing I would just suggest, I would say two mistakes I made were either to act from anger. It's natural to feel angry period. And certainly as a parent, you know, kids are annoying. (laughs) It's like a taboo to mention that. Chronic irritation. Yes. They're also incredible. They're wonderful. They're sweet. They'll lift your heart, you know, but they're annoying sometimes. So it's easy to get caught in anger. My mistakes begin with anger often. I mean, rather than not so much anger is natural, but to act from it, to speak from it is problematic. Uh, so it doesn't mean we can't be firm and clear. We can't acknowledge how we feel, but to act or speak from anger is usually a problem. And the other thing, my other category of mistakes was I didn't speak from my heart often enough. I didn't Mm -hmm. slow it down, drop my guard, get real, get vulnerable and say, Hey, I just got to say, this is how it is for me right now. I'm not criticizing you. I'm not getting, this is not a policy conversation about what we ought to do. Maybe we'll get to that. But I just kind of say, this is what it's like to be me right here, right now. And I want you to know it. Um, I wish I'd done that more. So that's, mm. those are the things I would say. That's wonderful. And I think what I've noticed is that as children grow up, they like mid twenties, early thirties, they start to parent 
their parents too. There's this like kind of like <laughs> flip that happens where all this wisdom starts to come the other direction. So and I imagine you're experiencing that now with your adult children. What are you learning from them? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, wow. I'm, I'm learning that we did okay. Yeah. And one of the worst feelings to have as a human, I think, is to, whether it's even, especially at three in the morning, is to feel like you messed up as a parent. Yeah. And so one thing I'm learning from them is to, is we did okay. Uh, another thing I'm learning from them actually is to really appreciate how intense it is to be a parent. Like we're going back and watching videos that I shot when they were, you know, 25 years old that I burned at DVDs. Mm. We're now watching them when the kids are like five or eight or nine or, you know, nine months old. And they're bowled over by all the crud we dealt with, all the trips yeah. we took, all the things we packed, just the, the grind of daily mm -hmm. life. I've kind of learned to appreciate that. And then I think uh, maybe last, uh, I've learned definitely about technology in different ways for my kids. That's great. And um, I think I've kind of learned what's the most important thing. You know, there's a saying, the most important thing is to remember the most important thing. And I think the most important thing is to rest in the feeling between you and me. The I thou feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Whoever the thou is, and to rest in that sense of your child as a thou, or your mate as a thou, or frankly, the stranger passing you on the street as a thou. And I have a little saying, thou all beings. That's a standard I'm aiming for. I don't do it every minute of every second of every day, let's say, but every second of every minute. But to me, that's an aspiration. So one of the takeaways from my own kids, I think, is to help me really appreciate that the most important thing is not getting the dishes done or the homework completed. It's to re re remain rested in that feeling of I and thou with the other person. That's beautiful. So we can rest in that relationship with other. And I think you also talk about resting in that relationship with ourselves. You've had a very prolific career. And there was something that you said in your New Year's episode uh, with Forrest that stuck with me, which was that you were contemplating this idea of laying it all down. Yeah. And I wonder what that means in terms of your relationship with you. Like, what is, what is happening within you at this mm -hmm. point in your career? What, what, what you're considering in terms of what matters to you right now and the next steps for you? Well, being quite real about it, from about six years old, I was a very self-aware kid. Whatever the mysterious causes and conditions of that, don't know. But um, clearly by the time I was six, I had this very clear sense that it was on me to make my own life and that I needed to do that and rescue was not coming. And day by day, step by step, I really needed to build something. And so I feel like I've had a plan <laughs> for 50 plus years, one way or another, not always a good plan, but I've had a plan. So I've had a checklist. I've had stuff to do. I've been on task, you know, for a long, 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 long time. And I feel like my inner being is like a very uh, agreeable, dutiful horse that's been plugging away uphill for 50 plus years. And it's increasingly telling me, yo, dude, <laughs> it's time for some pasture. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, so I feel in myself is this sense of late stage career. You know, it's a developmental process, right? I've been mm -hmm. your master's in develop my psych developmental psychology, and there's a life stage process. And uh, like you're in kind of early middle career. I'm in late middle career or early, late career, uh, if you will, things are different at different stages developmentally. And so for myself, there's this movement in my heart that is interestingly anti the current of my professional circumstances, which are more successful than ever. So it's a really interesting thing, which I think of mm -hmm. as wonderfully counterintuitive to walk away. And I've actually mm -hmm. thought 
time to time about writing a book about people who just walk away. Yeah. They walk away yeah. from success. You know, they, it's not so much walking away from disaster. We understand walk away from the train wreck. But what do you do when you're really quite successful or you've achieved a lot and you just go, this is really cool. And now I'm going to do something different. It's like we don't have a cultural script for that. It, it's almost culturally disobedient, you know, civil disobedience, cultural disobedience. And so, therefore, it intrigues me and amuses me, you know, to explore this more and more myself. And maybe I'm talking about it in loftier language than it really deserves. But what that kind of looks like for me is dialing back, saying no, and knowing that there's a saying in the Tao Te Ching that one who knows that enough is enough always has enough. It's to know that you've had enough. You've... You've done it. You did it. Mm -hmm. And now there are other callings. Uh, there's a model in, I think, India, apparently, that life has sort of three stages, student, householder, and renunciate. I've been a strong householder, including work. And there's a movement in me increasingly to that third stage of life, uh, including more time for more formal spiritual practice. So that's kind of what's cooking. But fear not, uh, I have another book or two in me, I think. Uh, my, yeah. my my wife, my wife laughs at my notion of retirement. Um, it's only to do a book a year, honey. Don't worry. But otherwise, yeah. we're just going to let the rest go. Uh, so yeah. anyway, that's and it feels it feels wonderful. Uh, and the other thing, though, going to fears of nuclear war and other things, we literally don't know if the next moment will come for us. It will come for the universe. The Earth will keep twirling around the sun, but we don't know if it will come for us. So, you know, it's, there's this beautiful practice, I think, of being gobsmacked with gratitude for this moment while completely letting go of it into the mystery of the next one before it arises. And to live in that space, in that razor-thin moment of now, continuously, it's a really great practice. Thank you, Dr. Hansen. Rick. I feel like I've been in that razor thin moment of space with you for the last 50 minutes, just completely <laughs> present. And, uh, and I hope that you do take, if it's not a big walk away, I hope you take moments to walk away. Yeah. Well, just like you. the little moments that you shared with us. I want to walk away too, <laughs> Yeah. but we get to do that in the here and now lots of times. It's an honor. It's a delight uh, to have you on the show. Mm. And I so strongly recommend um, your collaboration with Forrest. I love your podcast now that you're not in the middle of the night with me. You're on my runs now, which <laughs> I appreciate too. Uh, better state of mind usually when I'm running. And, and then also for, for folks that want to spend a year with you, what would it be like if you did these practices for a whole year? Can you imagine how your brain would change and your relationships and your life? We could all use... A, a sabbatical with Rick Hansen for a year. Check out the online program and we'll we'll link to that in in our show notes and we get to hear again from you in the near future with when Yael interviews you mm. all about neurodharma your next yeah. book that's coming out. Oh, thank you and that that practice for a year is the program is about an hour a week. Uh, yes. the most important practice is the one you'll do consistently. And about an hour a week is what people will do. And if you do that, though, at the end of the year, you really, really grow a lot in a systematic yeah. way. So thanks for mentioning that to people. And we love to scholarship people in. We're quite happy for people to pay the, the reasonable price for the online program. It's incredibly full with resources. And if financial need is an issue, one of the functions of this program is to be able to make it available for people in financial need here in America as well as around the world. I know a lot of people are mental health providers that listen to this podcast, and there is a 20-hour continuing education yeah. for mental health providers, too. So that's the best part is you get to do your continuing education, but it's really personal development. Best part of being a therapist. <laughs> Deduct it. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. It's, it's been a delight to have you on, and we look forward to hearing more from you. Oh, a complete pleasure, Diana. And I, I hope to get to know you more over time. I would really look forward to that. Hi, everybody. It was so great to listen to Dr. Hansen today, Rick Hansen. And for those of you that are interested in doing that online year-long program, remember that you can access it through our affiliate link at the bottom of this episode in the show notes or through our website, offtheclockpsych.com. And don't forget when you do so to enter the promo code 
off the clock 40 and you'll get $40 off his year long program. Take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.